Hi, my name is Nelson Bennett, and this is the Merovingian Podcast. Last week, we wrapped up the last of the Sons of Clovis, leaving Clothar old and troubled, but technically triumphant. This week, we're going to step away from the ruthless, brutal, and power-hungry kings of the Franks, and take a look at the two most significant queens of the Franks that we've met so far in Episode 9, The Saintly Queens. The lives of Clothild and Radegund would be fascinating even without the profound political influence they wielded, both during their lives and after their deaths. Both lived incredible lives, full of tragedy, heartbreak, triumph, controversy, and constant struggle against those who sought to limit them. They fought no great wars and commanded no armies, yet their power cannot be denied. On top of this, the lives of these two women share significant similarities. Both came from other Germanic kingdoms, both were princesses, both had royal families who had lost power, both had close relationships with bishops, and both married the most important men of the time, Clovis and Clothild, Radegund and Clothar. In many ways, during her life, Radegund built upon an archetype of a powerful religious queen that Clothild had pioneered. Most importantly, both women used their unique positions to influence major events in the Merovingian realm. This podcast so far has been dominated by discussions of what we can call hard power. Hard power consists of the classic forms of power we are conditioned to expect. A state using military or economic might to coerce their neighbours or repressive measures like police crackdowns to subdue an unruly populace, these are all examples of hard power. But there is another side to power that is often overlooked in the historical narrative. Soft power. Soft power relies not on coercion, but on persuasion. Former White House official and political scientist Joseph Nye popularized the term in the modern day, but efforts to co-opt rather than coerce are as old as politics itself. This kind of power is defined by deal-making, consensus-building, and non-coercive means of influence. Now, it would be wrong to say that all Merovingian kings use solely hard power methods while their wives monopolize soft power. Ruling is complex and takes a variety of approaches to be successful. But it would not be wrong to say that the military autocracy of the Merovingian kings was largely rooted in hard power, while their queens both tempered this and carved out their own niches with softer tactics. And the queens were helped in this endeavour by the unique political structure of the early Merovingian court. To identify these unique aspects, we must first ask ourselves a simple question. From where does power derive? Or to put it another way, who or what gives someone the authority to rule? This simple question has had several different answers throughout history. Sometimes, the answer is simple. Those who rule, rule, because it has always been that way. The City of London, for example, derives its authority from time immemorial, meaning it exists because it has always existed. For those not lucky enough to have existed or ruled as far back as the records go, however, 
there was another obvious solution. God. This is one of the oldest methods of establishing legitimacy. Early cities in the Middle East and Fertile Crescent were often dominated by priests who claimed to speak to the gods. And the Chinese Mandate of Heaven concept is also based around the idea that their emperors ruled due to divine support. This idea would manifest in medieval Europe as the divine right to rule, and would last well into the modern age, sparking conflicts like the French Revolution. But these ideas were yet to form fully in the Merovingian period. Even further away were ideas of democracy. The suggestion that authority derives from a mandate from the masses would likely have sent the Merovingian kings into fits of laughter. No, the Merovingians, especially the early kings, ruled as despots. There is a famous story recorded by the ancient historian Thucydides, where the Athenians demanded the submission of the island of Melos during the Peloponnesian War. When the Melians asked to be left alone, pointing out that they were neutral in the war and the Athenians had no reason to attack them, the Athenian emissary simply said, quote, The strong do what they can, and the weak suffer what they must. It is this attitude of might makes right that informed the Merovingian kings as well. You want the crown? Well, come and take it. Yet this acknowledgement of naked force being the only thing keeping you in power is problematic. As we saw at the start of this series, the later Roman emperors were much more autocratic and despotic than their predecessors, and they faced constant civil unrest, rebellions, and usurpers. These men were the Merovingians' main examples, and their legacy influenced all the successor states in the West. But the Romans had ruled their empire for centuries. A new realm, like that of the Merovingians, did not have the same kind of stability born from so many years of rule. They may have seized power by the sword, but keeping power that way would only result in men like Godemar, who believed they could match Merovingian military power, or men like Munderic, who saw their causes as just and were forced to rebel as no pathway to peaceful mediation existed. The early Merovingians were fierce, but even they could not afford to let every minor dispute or disagreement spiral into open conflict. It would exhaust their realm and endanger their position. A more workable solution had to be found. As we have discussed before, the Romans would have advocated for legal procedures and pathways to resolve disputes. But the Merovingians were not Roman, and these methods were not established and likely not appealing to the kings. So it fell to their queens to pick up the slack. When Clothald married Clovis, he was still in the midst of his conquests, and would remain so for most of his life. But she knew seizing land was one thing, but keeping that land was another thing entirely. At the beginning of this series, we discussed how the developments of late Roman rule in the West left the aristocracy of Gaul ready and willing to accept new rulers, especially those with a lighter administrative touch than the famously bureaucratic imperial court. They were willing to accept Clovis, as they had been willing to accept the Visigoths and the Burgundians before him. But they had no loyalty to the barbarian conqueror, and long term, that was going to cause problems. 
there had to be a way to tie the aristocracy to the new royal family, a carrot to go along with the stick of military intervention. Clothild came from Burgundy, a land of powerful kings but plenty of instability. One of the main issues with the Burgundian realm was the conflicts between the Gallo-Roman church and their barbarian rulers. The church was not stupid enough to openly rebel against their fierce barbarian overlords, but they were also not happy about the Burgundian king's insistence in clinging to their heretical beliefs. Clothild herself followed the Nicene Creed, just like the Romans and the Gallo-Romans, and she had watched as the religious disagreements had torn apart her family and her realm. When she married Clovis, who was still a pagan, she was given the opportunity to improve the position of her new family with the lessons she had learned in the chaotic Burgundian court. Thus, she slowly began working on him, demonstrating remarkable determination. She argued with him openly, insulting his pagan gods and pointing out the superiority of the Christian faith. In return, he refused, equally performatively, likely to bolster support amongst his still pagan Frankish troops and allies. When she bore him a son, she baptized the child against Clovis's wishes. When the child died soon after, Clovis attacked her, arguing it was the baptism that led to the child's untimely death. Clothild steadfastly refused, and when she bore another son, she baptized him as well. This son also became sick, and Clovis claimed he would soon die for her mistakes. But she prayed, and the boy recovered. This son would grow up to be Clodomer, king of Orléans. The arguments continued until Clovis's deliverance from the Alemanni, apparently thanks to the Christian god. But he was still reluctant to abandon his pagan ways, as the Franks were still mostly pagan. There was also a serious chance he might convert to the Arian creed. His sister already had, and most of his fellow Germanic kings were Arian Christians. But Clothud was still determined to match her husband's faith to that of his new subjects, and helped pull off a diplomatic coup. By bringing in help from the Bishop of Rheims, Remigius, she not only ensured that Clovis' faith would match that of his subjects, but that a solid bond was forged between them. By letting a Gallo-Roman bishop convert and baptize Clovis, the Gallo-Roman church now held a vested interest in seeing Clovis and his Merovingian family succeed. What's more, making such an important bishop openly come out and take this step is also impressive, considering they usually tended to try and stay more or less neutral in the unstable and violent barbarian realms. Many priests and bishops had been persecuted for suspected treachery in other states like that of the Visigoths. So convincing Remigius to openly take a side and support Clovis must have taken much skill and time to arrange. Clothild's holy reputation, even while she was alive, was undoubtedly a large factor in her success. The power and influence she wielded has already been made clear in this series. Think back on how insecure Childebert was that she might succeed 
and placing the sons of Clodomer on the throne, despite the opposition of both of her sons. Clothild's role as a power broker in the realm extended well past her husband's death, and her reputation worked as a shield against those who might seek to displace or even harm her. She was never put aside by Clovis like so many other Merovingian wives, likely because he knew just how crucial she was to his continued success. A merciful, holy reputation helped Clothil demonstrate a softer power inherent to Merovingian rule, one that you could safely approach and discuss disputes and seek help as opposed to facing her husband or sons, who might simply kill you for your disloyalty. Who knows how many conflicts she helped her husband and sons avoid? Perhaps it is no coincidence that the only major challenge to Merovingian rule in this period, Munderic's rebellion, happened in Theuderic's realm, the only son of Clovis that was not hers. Holy reputation, diplomatic skill, wielding your position to achieve your aims, building consensus to actively influence events, these were the legacies of Clothild, and they were legacies her daughter-in-law would learn from and even build upon. We don't know if Radegund and Clothild ever met. Radegund is meant to have been kept isolated by Clothar until their marriage in 540. But whether they met or not, Radegund would have been well aware of the great queen's reputation, and quickly seems to have learnt how to emulate her. The first thing Radegund learnt in her political career was that she needed leverage. At the beginning, she had little power. Upon hearing that she was to marry Clothar, the man who had killed her family, laid waste to her homeland, and kept her isolated for years, Radegund attempted to flee. But her flight was unsuccessful, and the young woman was quickly caught, returned to Clothar, and they married. She spent ten years as his wife, and it was time she used wisely. Using her husband's treasury, she gave alms to the poor, so much in fact that it was a cause of conflict with Clothar. She ignored him, however, and continued with her efforts to give away as much of his wealth as she could get her hands on. She also used her position as queen to make herself visible to the populace, and to build relationships with significant people in the realm. We will note two of these here. First, the poet Venantius Fortunatus, whose letters with her are surprisingly intimate, and who would later write the more famous of her two hagiographies, where he argues forcefully for her to be granted sainthood. The second is our friend Gregory himself. The Bishop of Tours and author of Our Histories is meant to have gained his bishopric partly due to her influence, and repaid the favour by constantly portraying her positively in his writings, and criticising those who stood in her way or failed to live up to her example. In 550, ten years after her marriage, we get to see just how effective her methods were at building support. That year, her brother, the last remaining member of her family, the same brother for whom she had written her famous poem, The Fall of Thuringia, was killed. This would have been awful enough for Radegund, but the assassins were sent by none other than her husband, Clothar. With Theuderic, Clodomer, and Theudebert gone, 
Clothar was slowly shifting into his position as the most powerful of the Merovingian kings, and seems to have seen the Thuringian prince in exile as potentially a future problem to nip neatly in the bud. Radegund, distraught at the news, fled her husband and ended up in the church of Maedard, bishop of Noyon. What follows is one of the most fascinating events of the period. Maedard, knowing Radegund has fled before and been returned, knowing Clothar has sent men out after her and was demanding for her return, knowing that Clothar is a brutal and harsh man, more than willing to lash out against those who wrong him, had every reason to refuse her sanctuary. But Maedard also knew of Radegund's reputation, the stories of her good deeds and her popularity, both amongst the populace and amongst the clergy. She presented herself to him in monastic robes, bowing her head and showing proper deference to him as a bishop, despite her position as queen. He made a cost-benefit analysis in his head. Maedard was a political figure like all of the bishops of the period. He knew if he granted her sanctuary, there would be a solid chance the king's men would storm his church anyway, and there would be savage reprisals for the Gallo-Roman church. He also knew if he gave her up, his reputation would forever be stained, and the prestige of the church would also take a hit. Radegund had engineered the situation perfectly, so that there was only really one choice for Maedard. He consecrated her as a deaconess, officially making her part of the church and severing the ties that bound her to Clothar. I want to state again what an unbelievably dangerous move this was. Clothar was close to the peak of his power, had shown little regard for societal rules or restrictions, had shown ruthless brutality and unbridled greed. Yet, the bishop still chose to put himself and the church between Radegund and the Merovingian king. And it worked. Clothar eventually backed down and left her alone, even helping fund the construction of her own abbey in the city of Poitiers. Perhaps he knew the consequences for reclaiming her were simply too large, or as some sources suggest, she offered her holy power to pray for his soul, and he knew his soul needed all the help it could get. Either way, amazing. This story shows how Radigan's effective use of the same soft power tools Clothild had used allowed her to escape the most powerful man in the West. She built relationships, used propaganda opportunities to build her reputation, and manipulated diplomatic situations to her advantage masterfully. One more story shows the eventual peak of her influence she attained, and also reinforces just how little care she had for male authority figures when they stood in her way. At her new Abbey of the Holy Cross, she lived an odd life. Despite living as an ascetic, she maintained a surprisingly robust stream of important visitors and, as we can see with Gregory's ascension to bishop, robust political influence. There was only one problem. The bishop of her city, Morovius, was unhappy. 
In the same way that Gregory relied upon the cult of St. Martin to support his rule in Tours, Morovius relied upon the somewhat less prestigious cult of St. Hilary to support himself in Poitiers. The issue was that a new, popular, dynamic religious centre had sprung up in his city, headed by a woman. Radegund had not made herself abbess, humbly offering the role to a supporter, but she was clearly in control, and her prestige and influence was beginning to undermine Morovius's position in his own city. So, he took action. Radegund, in another stunning diplomatic coup, had secured a piece of the true cross, the cross on which Christ was crucified, for her abbey. After negotiating with the Eastern Romans, they offered it to her freely. Apparently news of her holy reputation had stretched as far as Constantinople. This relic was unbelievably valuable, not only in money, but in prestige, and the fact the Romans were willing to give it up to a former queen all the way in Gaul is astounding, and shows just how far the arm of Radagon's influence could reach. But Morovius knew of the prestige this would bring Radagon's abbey. As historian Lisa Bailey notes, he was already frustrated by her, quote, enclosed and self-authorizing nature, end quote, and couldn't afford to lose any more power to the disruptive holy woman. So, he blocked the installation of the true cross into the abbey. Technically, his permission as bishop was needed, and she couldn't install it without a bishop, so he had her in a bind. Or so he thought. Radigund, seemingly unperturbed by this challenge, simply left Poitiers and approached her son-in-law, King Sigebert, one of Clothar's sons and successors. Once there, she asked the king to simply have another bishop install the relic. So, Sigebert asked, and Euphronius, Gregory's predecessor as Bishop of Tours, made the journey and installed the relic with all due ceremony. This is significant for two reasons. First, Sigebert would not have wanted to anger Morovius, who was bishop of an important city and well-connected. But he really didn't want to cross Radigund, so he didn't hesitate. Second, Euphronius directly intervened against another bishop and humiliated him in his own city. This was simply not done, and much of the strength of the church came in their bishops working together to present a united front against their Frankish overlords. But, you know what else was simply not done? Denying Radigund. Notice, Radigund did not act harshly or forcefully. It was not even really her who humiliated Morovius. She just asked for help and let her allies do the dirty work for her. It is a marvellous display of the influence Radigund wielded at this point in her life. The only male figure more powerful than a bishop in this period was a king. But she brushed aside Morovius like he was naught but a fly buzzing in her face. This story shows just how effective soft power can be in achieving desirable outcomes. Make no mistake, these may seem like petty squabbles to us today, but they were deadly important to the people of the time. 
and Radagon won. Easily. Both of these queens lived remarkable lives. There is so much more that we could talk about, but we must move on. Otherwise, I'll spend hours on the dramatic tales and historical intricacies these women inspired. Still, do not worry. Soon we will return to the Queens of the Franks and discuss the other, more harsh, more violent, more openly aggressive side of Merovingian queenship with the great rivals Fredegund and Brunhild. They will appear alongside their husbands, two of the sons of Clothar, but will also get their own episode down the road. Maybe two. There is a lot to talk about. In the meantime, however, we will return ourselves to the lives of kings and their warring. The sons of Clothar would prove even more violent, power-hungry, and less constrained than the sons of Clovis. Next week, we'll pick up where we left off with the chaotic last years of Clothar. See you then.